1: This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Thursday, August 30th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Wall Street Journal reports that Starbucks is putting its decadent Frappuccino on a diet, looking to reduce the drink's high sugar levels which have scared away increasingly health-conscious consumers and hurt sales. Some versions of the drink contain more than twice as much sugar as a standard Snickers bar and far more calories. A 16-ounce mocha frappuccino contains 410 calories compared with 250 in a 1.86-ounce Snickers bar. Well, here's the solution. Starbucks is rich. Buy out Snickers! And double the calorie in a Snickers. And you avoid the comparison. But does this ever work? Not the Snickers thing. The idea where you have a product, a tasty but terrible for you product, and that product gets some bad press or someone actually looks at the calories of the product and then the makers of the product say, okay, We're going to make it less terrible for you, but also less tasty, and everyone will be happy as a result. No, that never works. Did snack wells save ladyfingers? They did not. Did Lay's with Olestra save Lay's with nice greasy oil? They did not. Did all the menu items with a heart on them at the Olive Garden counteract the endlessness of their breadsticks? I just checked. Their breadsticks, like the heart in a Celine Dion song, are still going on. It's just a stupid, stupid American instinct, and it never works. A frappuccino, frappuccino, what a ridiculous word. A frappuccino on a diet is a worse frappuccino, and we don't want a worse frappuccino. Just drink a smaller one, or just drink them less often, or I don't know, don't have two frappuccini a week, have one. If Fred can't fit into his chinos because of a Frappuccino, who needs to go on a diet? Not the Frappuccino. It's Fred. Frappuccino. What do you expect from a Frappuccino? It is a cappuccino, which has some calories in it to begin with, and then you add a frap, and like I quoted in the Wall Street Journal, you top it with mocha. Gee, I wonder how we could get this mocha-topped frap combined with a cappuccino to have fewer calories. Well, you know those three caloric substances you combined? How about one less of them? It's like a liquid sugar turducken, a sure turdrunken. Look, my words and your ears are not going to combine to get us out of this Frappuccino problem. This is more a problem of the gut, not the mind. We want that Frappuccino. It can't be argued away via the head. Now you will excuse me as I tuck into my Rudy tooty fresh fresh-and-fruity breakfast special and wonder just how much more fruit I could add to make it truly, truly healthy. On the show today, I spiel about these strange and confusing motivations of an archbishop who is accusing the pope of a great cover-up. But first, Heather Cox Richardson is a professor of American history and political parties who, thanks to the long view of history, can put our worry and dread in perspective That perspective being, it is in fact quite warranted. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a defender. And I look down the block and indeed there is. And me and Jay, the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the defender. We peer in the window. I have to say, oh, I don't want to make this a little too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we gvel. To drive the defender is to explore with greater confidence we looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com Defender. If you are familiar with an old style of newspaper column, there was this question can this marriage be saved? And then the Anne Landers type, what in Britain they call the agony aunt, would weigh in and she'd opine if this marriage can be saved. These days, we have a different version of that. Take out the word marriage and substitute the word democracy or government or society or country? And this is the question that is being asked left and right. This question was best answered, I think, for a year on a podcast called Freak Out and Carry On. And one of the hosts of that podcast was Professor Heather Cox Richardson. That podcast is done, even though I don't think we're done freaking out. But Professor Richardson, who teaches at Boston College, is here with me to talk about how much we should be freaking out if the presidency is legitimate And an area of her expertise, the Republican Party. Hello. Thank you for joining me. That's great to be here. So I want to go back to that podcast, which I love, freak out and carry on. Which of those two phrases are you embracing more these days?
0: Well, it's funny. That was chosen as a title because every time we had a discussion, my co-host, Ron Suskine would – freak out. And I was the one who would say, now, come on, Ron, we've been here before we can do this. So I was always the carry on part of that. And I'm still in that camp in the carry on camp.
1: Because you have the long view? Because you know that we've had challenges like this before?
0: Yes, exactly. There's a problem, I think, in modern day news because people seem to think the world started yesterday. And the reality is we've been doing this for a long time. George Washington said this was a great experiment. And we've tripped. A lot of times we've tripped. And each time we have managed somehow to pull ourselves back together and go forward, maybe a little smarter the next time around.
1: So Yasha Monk and others have written books about why our freedom is in danger and how to save it. Would would you go that far? It's a two-part question. It's maybe not fair, but would you go that far or would you go that far but also say, well, in a sense, if you participate in a democracy, it's always in some sense of danger.
0: I think we're in terrible danger. I think we that democracy is hanging by a thread. I do not think we have been in this great a danger probably ever, with the possible exception of the rise of the slave power in the 1850s. So I think it's realistic to be very concerned. We have a number of things going on right now that are largely unprecedented. The first is, of course, that Congress, which is supposed to check the president when the president starts to behave in ways that are autocratic or are illegal, Congress is supposed to step in and stop him. I mean and and congresses have done so even if they have not necessarily wanted directly to take on a president from their own party they have at least provided some kind of a fig leaf of a pushback. And in this case congress just seems to have rolled over and played dead and this is something that has never happened before. So that's a real issue. We also have the problem of the fact that President Trump and the people around him are packing the courts as quickly as they possibly can. This is often flying under the radar screen, but it's a really big deal. And this has been a part of the Republican Party agenda since Reagan articulated it back in the 1980s. Get those benches full of Republicans who will defend the Republican vision. So both of those things are very concerning. Those are countered by the fact that Americans have finally woken up to the fact that this is happening. But that brings up the other reason that I'm terribly worried, and that is that the Republicans in power right now are gaming the system. They're gaming the system, of course, by gerrymandering. We all know about that now, but also by voter suppression. And voter suppression has been a huge player in our democracy since at least 2000 with the election of uh, George W. Bush over Al Gore. There was actually a congressional report after that. Most people don't recognize that there was one, but there was a congressional report that said, you know, we're not sure it was deliberate. But it's clear that the laws that were in place in Florida at the time dramatically suppressed the Democratic vote in that election. And that, I think, was really the start of when we had to worry about a series of leaders who were not necessarily supported by the majority of Americans. And when that happens, you've got a huge crisis for democracy because either people are represented in their government or they're not. And that's that's where we are right now.
1: But you're... You're a historian, and you know, compared to past eras where now we're disenfranchising some small percentage, though notable percentage, enough to swing elections, it was de jure, not de facto, for hundreds of years. Wasn't it worse then in periods that you rate as less dire than now?
0: Well, worse is, of course, hard for anybody to to make claims about because, of course, by definition, you never really know but the place that looks very much like where we are right now to me is the 1890s. And in the 1890s, when the people we call the robber barons started to rise, they recognized beginning in the 1880s that they could no longer command a majority of the popular vote. They knew that people didn't like them. They didn't like their policies, the policies that were moving wealth upward. And when that happened, the Repub- it was the Republican Party at the time who represented those robber barons for the most part. And when that happened, big business and railroad men managed to pack the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court under Melville Fuller in the 1890s and the 19 aughts passed a number of pieces of legislation that really concentrate power among the very wealthy. We get Plessy v. Ferguson, for example. We get Inray Debs, which says that the government actually can prosecute a single individual. I think that moment looks very much like the present. And that gives me some hope that we have to he- been here before We've done it before and we emerged from that moment as a much stronger government and a much stronger sense of there being a community to which the government should respond.
1: Let's talk about the midterms for a second. If the Democrats take back the House and maybe start making Congress do what Congress is supposed to do, how much of a corrective will that be? How much does it lower the temperature?
0: I don't think it lowers the temperature. I think it heightens the temperature in the sense that when that happens, when a party controls the House of Representatives, what they also do is they control the makeup of committees and they control the chairmanship of the committees. Most people may not know that. But what that means is that all of a sudden you will have a shift from chairman of committees or chairpeople of committees protecting the president to investigating the president. So what I would expect is a complete shower of investigations on why what has happened. And those investigations will be thorough and they will be devastating. You don't even have to go any deeper than the fact that children and their parents were separated with evidently no attempt to keep track of where each were so they would be torn apart. That right there is a scandal that would define an administration at any other time. So that sort of thing will come up and be very visible, I think. But you'll also get the pushback from this rump of pro-Trump people who are desperate to defend the man that they now see as the only savior of the American Republic. And I still, I've said since the beginning, and I still believe that it is not at all a far reach to think that this administration is going to end in a deal and a resignation that would fit his personality and it would fit the, it would fit the circumstances as things get hotter and hotter and as it's clearer and clearer that not only President Trump is in the crosshairs, but also his family members are. So I think we're looking at a really rocky two years, but I'm not still not ready to say we're going to be riding this to 2020.
1: Well, you've written about the history of the Republican Party, and now they say it's Trump's party. Uh, What does that mean? Do you think it will continue to be Trump's party?
0: Well, when people say it's Trump's party, they seem to think that this—that he has come out of nowhere and kidnapped the Republicans and is holding them in a closet with a gun to their heads. The reality is that Trump is a product of what has become of the Republican Party. That old idea of traditional Republicanism that became Teddy Roosevelt's progressivism, that became Eisenhower Republican, that became Rockefeller Republicanism, that got kidnapped really by a group of, a cabal, I think, of libertarians and of business people who resented any kind of government intervention in their businesses. They hated government regulation and they hated taxes. And what they did is they managed to destroy what was an incredibly popular liberal consensus shared by both the Democrats and the Republicans, the idea that the government should regulate business, provide a basic social safety net, and promote infrastructure. So the idea that somehow Trump has hijacked this party is crazy. He's the logical outcome of what the Republicans have done. He is reflecting back their language and he is selling it to the base. Now, the question is, can the Republican Party ever recover from this? And I think yes. I've always thought yes. I think that these, that this base group will hive off and become its own far fringe group. The question is, are the Republicans going to get the spines back to do what's right and take their party back? And that I don't think – I thought it was going to happen sooner rather than later. But I think we've got to clear away the rot that is Trumpism and movement conservatism and really once and for all throw it in the dustbin of history before the Republicans are ever going to have a chance of resurrecting themselves.
1: Right. So if I were a Republican, I would say resurrecting ourselves, bringing us back. We control 31 state legislatures to the Democrats 14. We have the the total control of the governorship and state houses of more than half the states. The Democrats only have eight. What is this recovering?
0: We're riding high. Well, there is a central question. They are riding high because they are no longer playing the game of democracy. They are concentrating power very deliberately by gaming the system. And that is not democracy. It is we're definitely on the road to an autocracy. Now – That's sustainable for a while. It's certainly sustainable for a while. They've managed to do it in North Carolina, for example, and in Wisconsin and in Kansas. But the reality is that when you have a government that does not represent the majority of the people, there comes a time when the only way you can maintain control of those people is through violence. And we're not there yet. But the question is how many Americans really are going to accept the idea that we're going to look like, you know, I don't want to say North Korea because I think that's a far shot, but that we're going to look like Russia, which is, I think, the direction we're going quite deliberately. I think that this current administration, especially the man in charge of it. Um, celebrates Russia. He likes the idea of oligarchs in charge. He likes the idea, and it's an ideology, by the way. It's not just, gee, I want some of that, although it may be for Trump. But for, for actual oligarchs, it's the idea that societies really run best when a few rich men control things because they're really the only ones who understand what the world should look like. And the rest of us really are not able to manage our affairs terribly well. That's exactly what has happened in Russia. That's happening in other places in the world right now. It also looks very much like the slaveholders in the 1850s who thought the exact same way.
1: Okay. And my last question is, have you been impressed with how our institutions have held up under Trump?
0: I have not been impressed with the, the short-term institutions. That is, The big scandal in my mind is not the president. The big scandal in my mind right now is the Congress. Congress is the representative of the people, and they have, as I have said before, rolled over and played dead. In addition to being appalling, it infuriates me. That is such a charge of responsibility and honor and to— to be acting the way they're acting is a moral affront to me. And that's a huge problem. But the piece that has really impressed me is the piece that has made me very sad for most of my professional career. And that is that, you know, I study American democracy. I wake up in the morning and I think about American democracy and I teach it all day and I write about it and I read about it and then I go to bed and sometimes I dream about it. (laughs) And it has seemed to me to be heartbreaking that most Americans did not take it very seriously. They weren't voting, they weren't showing up. You know, when I would talk about things, people would roll their eyes like it was boring, like it was, you know, my version of playing badminton. And the fact that Americans are waking up and recognizing that democracy is a participatory sport, you know, they can't expect necessarily that Medicare is going to be there. You know, because it might not be, because they have to speak up and they have to say things. They can't assume that their Congress critters, if you will, as Molly Ivins used to call them, are going to do what's right, that they have to make demands, that they have to stand up. That has impressed me, and it has impressed me overwhelmingly that finally people of color and women are participating in really effective ways in our American system, which has rarely been the case. People of color have before, but, but women in general, not just the African-American women who've been effective, especially in the 1960s, but that women in general are stepping up to the plate and saying, this is our country and we need to make it respond to us. We need to create a government that responds to us. That to me is the heart of democracy and their resilience has not only been impressive, but it has maybe convinced me that we're really going to see a terrific future, which was not always easy to see about a year ago.
1: Heather Cox Richardson teaches history at Boston College. She is the author of To Make Men Free, A History of the Republican Party. Thank you so much.
0: It's been a pleasure.
1: And now the spiel. Archbishop Carlo Maria Viganò has written a long letter accusing Pope Francis of covering up abuse within the Catholic Church. Now, Viganò has gone into hiding, according to the journalist that he collaborated with on the letter. And that journalist says that Viganò fears for his life following the publication of his testimony. Now, it is true that Vigano is described as a conservative and a traditionalist, but when we say pre-Vatican II, we don't mean going back to the Borgias. He fears for his life? Will an angry albino member of Opus Dei chase down the bishop? Or is this just a bit of theater from a man who full well knows the power of spectacle? I wasn't sure what to make of the charges that Vigano leveled. Vigano conflates sexual abuse of children with what he calls quite frequently in the letter a homosexual current in the Vatican that's irresponsible and speaks to a panic. But even with that said, and even acknowledging Vigano's ideological opposition to Pope Francis, that doesn't mean that if he has eyewitness testimony to share that his account is wrong. However, if you scrutinize what he really is saying, I think it's quite open to question how much he's really seen, how much he really knows, and how much he's Lobbing accusations like so many Hail Marys. The football play, not the prayer. So the charge to summarize is this, that Pope Francis knew that Washington's Cardinal Theodore McCarrick abused seminarians and priests. The Pope knew about it and essentially tried to cover it up. So in 2011, when Pope Benedict XVI was still Pope, Benedict XVI is said to have punished McCarrick. But the punishment was quiet and subtle and was consciously trying not to garner attention. Vigano supported that, but says that Pope Francis knew there was a punishment in place and essentially ignored it and allowed McCarrick more freedom than Pope Benedict had. Now, a couple of questions here. It seems that whatever punishment was said to be imposed on McCarrick wasn't that severe. For instance, he was supposed to stop saying Mass. But he didn't. He was supposed to be stripped of his role as a public spokesman for the church. But here he is testifying before Congress, U.S. Congress, after those penalties were supposedly imposed.
0: As Archbishop Emeritus of Washington, I, I'm here today representing the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. I'll summarize my remarks and ask, and you graciously accept it, that my full testimony be entered into the record.
1: And here's the very odd thing. After the penalties that Pope Benedict supposedly put on McCarrick, the penalties that Pope Francis went easy on, according to Viganò, there is tape of Viganò himself honoring McCarrick, a man that, in his letter, he likens to evil itself. First of all, his eminence cardinal Theodore McCarrick. He's ambassador from quite a, a certain time as a priest, as a bishop, as a bishop and cardinal, and very much love from us all. Very much loved by us all. It could be argued that Viganò wasn't in a position to say what he knew about McCarrick when he was tasked as the papal nuncio The Pope's diplomat in the United States. He has to go give a speech. He has to say something nice about McCarrick. So he says something nice about McCarrick, even though in his soul he knows that this man is responsible for horrible abuses. Still, when you look at the tape, when you hear the laughter of Vigano talking about the man that he says represents all evil, that praise does not seem to be offered unwillingly. Granted, I have tried to do my best to read up on this, but I have to admit that a lot of my introduction to Vigano was colored by an attention-grabbing stunt he pulled when the Pope was visiting the United States. Perhaps you'll remember this. Vigano was the church official who surprised the Pope by introducing him to Kim Davis, that Kentucky clerk who became the hero of evangelicals when she refused to marry gay citizens, as was her duty. The Pope was very upset by this, as, well, he should have been. I mean, Kim Davis, I think, was last seen at a rally with Mike Huckabee while Eye of the Tiger was playing in the background. I'd really forgotten about Vigano until this letter came out, and then I read a lengthy article of the letter, In the New York Times, Jason Horowitz wrote it. The piece offered a lot of good details. Oh, but the adjectives. The adjectives weren't, shall we say, the holy of the holies. Quote, known for his short temper and ambition, Archbishop Vigano has clashed with superiors. The article goes on to say, supporters of Archbishop Vigano bristle at the notion that his letter calling on the Pope to resign represents the fury of a disgruntled excellency. The Fury of a Disgruntled Excellency. So what support does Vigano have within the church? For this, I turn to John Allen, the great, to my knowledge, the greatest Vatican reporter going. The scorecard so far is four bishops, prominent bishops, speaking in defense of Pope Francis, including the bishops of Newark, Chicago, and Washington. Six supporting Vigano, including the bishops of Tulsa, Phoenix, Tyler, Texas, Philadelphia, and a guy from Kazakhstan. But then he also notes, to make the record complete, those whose statements appear to skew in the Pope's favor generally were also responding to allegations against themselves that were contained in the Vigano missive. To quote catechism, oy vey. I'm not exactly sure where this is going to lead. Will an honest rooting out of abuse spring from the same forces who say that there's a homosexual current in the church? Might the skewed motivation of the whistleblower deafen us to a necessary whistle. As the Bible said, might this be a fixation on the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye while ignoring the plank in your own? It seems most likely to me that the disgruntled excellency will lead us to more disgruntlement and excellence will prove elusive. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who are thinking of splitting the Dairy Queen Oreo Cookie Ultimate Frap or the Misty Mocha Ultimate Frap. The first ingredient in each is Misty Slush Unfiltered Base Water. Mm. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He is hankering for the Hunka Chunka PB Fudge Fribble at Friendlies, but he'll be ordering the medium. Please let us not be indulgent. The gist: We're going home tonight. We're going to eat a whole cookie puss, but it's okay. It is a chocolate, crunchy, grass-fed, free-range cookie puss that was slaughtered in accordance with Carvelic law. Um Peru de Peru Peru, and thanks for listening.